friends, Kyla here. We have a little bonus for you this week. Kristen and I joined the Harbinger Media Network's telethon, the I Know What You Did Last telethon telethon. <laughs> so you'll hear Megan Linton, friend of the pod, and Unmaking Saskatchewan's Sarah Birrell talk Briar Patch's 50th birthday. And then you'll hear us talk with Green Majority Radio's Lauren Latour and host of Victor's Children, David Campfield, about his new book, Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change. If you like what you hear, you can listen to the rest of the six-part series at the Harbinger Society Presents show or on the Harbinger Spotlight Network highlight show, which are both available wherever you're listening to this right now. Or if you're really feeling keen, you can watch the 12-hour telethon production. I'll link to it in the show notes. This telethon was part of the Harbinger Media Network's fundraising campaign, so if you love the work that Harbinger does helping to educate, fight the far right, and create a progressive left community in Canada, you can support the network's 2022 fundraising campaign. The first 50 people to join at the mutual aid sustainers level, which is about $100 a year, will receive a new release from Canada's legacy left book publisher, Between the Lines. You can choose from titles like Feminist City, Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies, Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, and more. You can join by going to harbingermedianetwork.com slash join and support Canada's independent progressive podcast community. Now I leave you to this bonus episode, keeping in mind that Kristen and I have never done a telethon before, and it's going to sound a little bit different than what you might be used to. So enjoy. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Sarah Burrell, and I'm really glad that you're joining us here today. I'm a writer and researcher, and I'm the host of the Unmaking Saskatchewan podcast. And on the theme of Halloween, I'm also currently in like every writer's worst nightmare, which is that I am in a situation in close proximity to my editor, uh, who is going to be talking about the publication that the story that I'm supposed to be working on is in. And the story is not done. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I swear it will be in tomorrow, Saima. Um, but yes, I, I am in a truly cursed position here right now. Spooky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm joined by some really excellent people, uh, Megan Linton of the Remarkable Invisible Institutions podcast, uh, and then Saima Desai and John Cameron of Briar Patch Magazine, which is, uh, without exception, like one of the top three best things that has ever come out of Saskatchewan. Uh, so I'm really uh, glad that we're all here together today. And I think I'll, I'll turn it over to Saima and, and you folks can introduce yourselves. Oh my God, what an intro, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I've had the pleasure of editing writing from everyone else on this call today. So I'd say it puts me in, um, yeah, there's an interesting dynamic in the call today. I'll say that. Um, my name is Saima. I'm the editor of Briar Patch Magazine, uh, which for those of you that don't know, is an independent magazine based on Treaty 4 territory here in Regina. Um, and we cover um, we cover grassroots politics and social movements. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary next year. Um, and the story that Sarah's writing is going to be featured in that issue. Uh, so that's a little bit about me and excited to be here and raising money for Harbinger, arguably the best 
leftist podcast network in Canada. I'm Megan Linton, and I'm the writer and host of Invisible Institutions, a documentary podcast um, about the ongoing histories of the institutionalization of disabled people. Um, And yeah, thrilled to be here with some of my favorite writers and editors. And for once, Saima is not waiting on a piece from me. So (laughs) the first and only time, Megan, let's hope. I don't really know what to add to that. I'm John Cameron. I'm a publisher at Briar Patch, and I have the pleasure of reading uh, reading work and listening to work from these uh, everybody else on this call on a regular basis. So um, the main thing that I have to say is that uh, you have to support the independent media that you want to see in the country, um, whether that's Harbinger, uh, whether that's Briar Patch, uh, those institutions need your financial support. So thanks for watching the stream today. And uh, don't forget to smash that donate button. This is like the worst um to like be on a zoom but also be live and like have people watching you and i just keep thinking i'm like betty white never had to go through this like when she was doing fundraiser and telethons she never had to be in this awkward position uh and in this situation uh where you have to like facilitate transitions without being able to see everybody's body language so uh i think though that we're going to transition over to megan and talk a bit about invisible institutions which again i really recommend uh and megan was on on making saskatchewan last month uh to talk about her amazing show and uh yeah Megan, tell us more. Yeah, um, I want to start off by saying that I started making podcasts kind of alone in my apartment and didn't really know any people doing it. Um, And Harbinger really made so much of the podcast possible. Um, And Andrea is just like one of the best people. And yeah, support the media because it helps so much to be um, part of this bigger network. I wanted to start, I was going to tell a funny story, but I thought it would be um, fitting to make a Jerry Lewis telethon reference because it is a disability story that I feel like lots of people don't know, um, but it is certainly haunted and definitely telethonable. Um, So Jerry Lewis was a singer, I guess, or musician, and um, hosted for many years a telethon in the States for um, muscular dystrophy. And as a um, host and telethon runner, he really produced this image of disabled people being um, charitable and something to stare at and gawk at and feel bad about, because really... Um, telethons often, the only way to make people donate money is by um, making people feel really sad or emotional for the like poor disabled people that are in um, at the time institutions or like trying to stay out of them. Um, And so I just wanted to tell that story because I think that it helps understand how we see disabled people Um, And how that legacy really haunts so much of um, the way in which disability continues to be um, manifested in the country. And so I'm probably going to shift to talking about some sadder things because that's where we're at. And it's important to see like the models of disability, which like aren't that important to understand, but just to see how 
telethons and institutions and policies and um, like media really works to produce this understanding of disability that's one of um, uh, charity, one of medical um, understandings, and one that kind of divorces disabled people from the world um, and allows for so much of the violence that continues to be um, inflicted today. And I think that one of the huge benefits of um, independent media is that we're able to show disability and bring disability forward in a way um, that isn't able to be seen elsewhere. And I'm so grateful for Briar Patch, who just worked together on the beautiful, wonderful disability justice issue, which I'm up, um, which is the the best. And I feel so grateful for um, all of the independent media, yeah, in the country that allows these stories to be told, um, because it takes. Um, so much to be able to share these stories. And there's so much work that goes into covering them up and um, like making them hidden. And um, on that lens, I think it's like really important to see the way in which like media portrays disabled people and how that's allowed for things to happen. Um, so I earlier in the broadcast was Robin Urbach and Robin last year wrote an article about how um, like the disability community was full of like dramatic people who were saying that the world was coming crashing down. And that's really like the media that was portrayed across the country was that the expansions in medical assistance and dying wouldn't impact disabled people in the way that we in the disability community knew that it would. Um, and so as a result, and without a lot of public um, pushback, the legislation went through. And last week, they announced further expansions um, to medical assistance in dying to now be expanded to include babies and um, children under 18 and um, all people with mental illness. And I think like that media should feel haunted by the way that it portrayed both like our communities and the impact that it would have. Um, and it's like, we're in a really scary position today. And I feel um, grateful that there's coverage of it now and that people are starting to tune in. But for so long, it was like these stories were only being shared in independent media um, and really were like forced to be pushed to the margins. And so I think it's like so important to have this work, um, like have a space for it and to have it be able to be represented, not only a way that um, really challenges and people's thinking, but also like showcases the amazing work of um, disabled activists and organizers and um, community members. And um, yeah, I just, I feel like we're in a really dangerous spot for disabled people. Um, and 
as like fascism continues to rise and like divide people, I think it'll be so crucial to keep building these networks and like staying vigilant and working hard together. Um, yeah. And Invisible Institutions is a seven part audio documentary and it's definitely not done. Um, so stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Um, but yeah, I started the project about two years ago, um, after a lot of, um, work around institutions and, um, so many of so much of the work that happened, I'm still waiting on like a tips and um, interviews. And so um, I think the second season will be something very special because um, there's so much more to all of the stories. Um, and I am so grateful to have been on on making Saskatchewan and um, talked a bit more about the Saskatchewan institutions. And I think one of the pieces from the disability justice issue that really has stuck with me was in the Sask Dispatch, um, Erica Dick, who is a um, scholar at the University of Saskatchewan. And she talks about the walking through the graves of the um, institution in, um, in Saskatchewan and what an impact that had on her and the work that she does um, in archiving um, institutions. And I think it's so um, such an important lens of like reading this work. And I think that I will pass it over to Sarah. Um, and I feel we were talking just the other day about how our um, work is very sad and always brings the mood down a little bit. And even though Halloween isn't necessarily a time for um, sadness, it is definitely a time to be scared by the, um, the horrific policies and murderous bloodlust of politicians. And um, yeah, really the living dead, you know? So yeah. I had a, a friend actually recommend your podcast to me, Megan, not knowing apparently <laughs> that, we, that we had worked together already. Um, and they described it as very depressing, but extremely good and smart. So I think that you would probably agree with that characterization. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like the work we do is uh, depressing and spooky and haunted, but um, also what you're doing and just extremely good and smart. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I feel like whenever people describe the podcast, they're like, it's so sad. You know, it's like, and making the podcast, you kind of have to like really walk the line. And I was like, I did not, I like had to cut back on the sad cause it's like, it cuts so deep. Um, because like the horrors of capitalism are always so much spookier and deadlier um, than we can ever anticipate. But I am so glad that it is also a good podcast. <laughs> it's a really good podcast. And I think that like one of the great things about Harbinger and having that kind of network is that like it creates these 
opportunities to figure out like how the work that you're doing can link in with the work that other people are doing, which is like, I think really foundational for building grassroots movements and for like organizing and things like that is to figure out all of the commonalities that we have that can tie in and that can like really, um, build, build capacity and show people like all of the ways that, that the work is connected. So, um, I, yeah, it was really good to have you on. And like my, my podcast is also, a total bummer. And I have like one, one episode, which is probably like a lot like funnier and more lighthearted than any of the other episodes, which is one that I did with a friend of mine uh, about Coulter Wall. But even in that episode, we're talking about like domestic violence and femicide and like all of these truly like horrible things about Saskatchewan. Um, But yeah, uh, so our podcasts are bummers, but you should also listen to them. But also under no circumstances should you listen to them because they're very sad. (laughs) And speaking um, of how much we love Harbinger and the connection that it allows between uh, different podcasters, um, we're going to remind you that this is a telethon. We are raising money for Harbinger. Um, if you want to support their work building a left indie media community, you can donate directly on the stream or go to harbingermedianetwork.com and become a monthly donor. Um, it's a really good way to lend stable, ongoing support. Uh, And you also will get access to perks like merch, a free book from Between the Lines, and there's six different support tiers so you can donate uh, what you're able. Sorry. So we have like this little document that we put together to kind of like lightly outline what we were going to talk about, because otherwise this would have just been like absolute chaos, like just like a miserable kind of chaos. So I was just looking at the document because I'm like, I don't know where we are (laughs) in the series of, of stuff that we're supposed to be doing. But I noticed that like under under my my portion of like the theme and content, uh, Megan has just written ranting for 15 minutes about the discourse in Saskatchewan. And like at one point in time, I think I would have been like very sensitive about that. But I have come to realize that like my entire body of work is is simply ranting like that is like my my bread and butter is ranting and ranting about Saskatchewan specifically uh which is why the podcast even exists in uh in the first place uh but what about um before enough about me Saima (laughs) can you tell us about the 50th anniversary episode or the uh issue of Briar Patch because I'm really excited uh, to be a part of that and for that to come out um, and that the magazine has been around for that long. Yeah, totally. Before we do that, something that I think would be would make this conversation more fun and spooky is John had this idea that um, something that would be fun to do on this stream would be for us to not just talk about our, our publications, but also to um, play a horror video game while we're doing this, like a game I don't know, involving jump scares and maybe being hunted by some kind of like shadowy monster. So it took us a little while to get the tech set up, but uh, maybe I'm going to let John introduce the game and we can start playing the game. And then while I am anticipating a jump scare, I can tell you about Briar Patch's 50th anniversary. Uh so the game that uh, I've selected to stream over this, uh, you know, we're talking about all the the sort of uh, ghouls, gremlins, gargoyles haunting uh, everyday 
people's and working people's lives in Canada. Um, I've uh, selected a game called Hollowhead, which is about um, being pursued but through your own haunted apartment. I don't know anything else about it, so uh, I'm excited to get naturally scared, um, but not as as uh, scared as I am of the various machinations of the ruling class as they seek to oppress us and divide us on lines of, of gender, race, and economic class. So uh, we're going to play, uh, we are going to play Hollowhead, and I'm going to hit the uh, share button right now, uh, and I need everyone to tell me uh, if the volume of the thing is screamingly loud. How's that? Uh, is unless I have like just suddenly lost all of my hearing, it's not uh, it's not noisy at all. I uh, I never play video games, and I and I I'm not cool. And I only very recently learned that like you can, there are people who just play video games all day and other people watch them play the games. And it's like a career, like it's like a job that people have and, and have for like some time, uh, uh, which is not, is not something that I, I realized that that could be a lucrative uh, industry playing games for people to watch yeah they make more money than any of us working in indie media (laughs) (laughs) all of us put together honestly I like that um on this twitch stream we have two people who have never played video games or don't play video games that me and Sarah Simon do you play video games no I <laughs> I don't play video games. Um, my friend Jack will laugh because the they try to get me to play video games, and the only ones that I will play are Pokemon Snap, the game where you um, wander around and take photos of Pokemon. Um, actually, that's the only game because, like, I feel like my nervous system is so fucked from like staring at the worst things that human beings do to each other in the planet every single day for my job that like that's the level of voluntary anxiety I can manage in my recreational activities um yeah anyway so all of that is to say I don't really play video games no Megan okay so I'm glad that we have three people who don't play video games and one person who has never listened to a podcast before. I feel like that makes us a really robust um, <laughs> group of people. John, uh, I can hear the game noises now. You can hear this? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Great. Uh, I can I can definitely fix the sound of the... I can definitely fix the sound of the game and we'll get going in uh, two shakes here. I should say, though, like, I, it's not that I have never played a video game. I recently lost 250 hours of my life to Stardew Valley. Uh, so I'm not, like, completely not playing video games, but I apparently like video games where your job is, like, you just do chores. Uh, so anyway, trying not to to think too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> 250 hours is really specific. Uh, do you do you have like a timesheet or something? Do you like it clock in and you, clock out? Like when you log in, it tells you how many hours, which is like a really mean thing to do. Like I don't, nobody needs to know that. I don't want to know that. But this apartment building is looking scary, but like scary in the way where 
<laughs> oh my god you're locked in scary in the way where you like go to like the house of some guy that you're sleeping with the first time and like all of the furniture looks like it was like I don't know bought out of like a furniture showroom and there's like no art on the walls and like everything's the color gray and you're like what's why do you live like this <laughs> yeah, just straight up on the floor no box spring yeah yeah like a just a huge fucking tv as like a piece of furniture <laughs> like that's it this lamp one lamp one lamp this box is still lamp, unpacked like, from like yeah. two years ago yeah long couch <laughs> oh i just got a text from andre uh saying that lula was elected in brazil uh and wow. wanted me to announce it on the stream, uh, which I think is like a really exciting development uh, that was kind of in doubt for uh, a while there. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like people should probably like keep their eyes on the situation. It seems as though there's things happening. Yeah. yeah when I was walking to the to the Briar Patch office where I'm, I'm streaming from, I was reading all about the traffic cops in Brazil. Uh, well, something smells terrible. Oh, um, flies. I was reading about the traffic cops in Brazil, like stopping buses full of voters. So, uh, uh, yeah, that was. It's great to hear that uh, Lula is getting elected. Is the premise that this is your apartment? Yeah. Like why? <laughs> okay. <laughs> is the presence that you're a little bit like you're a little bit gross? And yeah, I really, I'm having a hard time relating to this video game because I would simply never live like this. Y'all ever wake up at 2 a.m. with your stinky garbage and you have to take it out? <laughs> in my in my room that's decorated like an Airbnb. Well, and it looks like a ho- this is a hotel hallway. Yeah, that's true. It does look like a hotel. Yeah. I mean, there's some like apartment buildings in Toronto that definitely look like this. Yeah, and like so many former hotels converted to did i just hear someone call for help from the garbage room oh my god and I still throws garbage <laughs> down there on top of them <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah it's getting harder and harder to relate to the protagonist of this game by the minute <laughs> um okay so maybe i'll i'll talk a little bit about briar patch's 50th anniversary um while we investigate who's calling for help from the garbage room. Um, so Briar Patch's 50th anniversary is coming up in 2023. Um, and it's wild that Briar Patch has been around for 50 years. There's so many publications um, in so-called Canada that have not made it to 50 years. Um, Briar Patch has made it to 50 years only because of like a tremendous amount of community support. And people are really dedicated to keeping the magazine going. But um, so next year in, in our January 2023 issue, we're publishing a special 50th anniversary issue that's going to look back at some of Briar Patch's history and celebrate us making it to half a century. Um, and then beyond that, like, you know, that'll be interesting for some Briar Patch readers, but not all Briar Patch readers care as much as I do, frankly, about the magazine's history. So, oh, a note. Spooky. There are cameras everywhere. 
Oh my God. Um, and so the other half of the 50th anniversary issue will be talking about leftist and independent media in Canada. And I see it as kind of a way for us to live up to independent media's promise of um, transparency to readers to sort of let readers behind the scenes a little bit and understand um, what we as like editors or folks very embedded in the indie media landscape here uh, know and think about indie media in Canada and also what kind of successes we faced. What is that scary red light? Um, (laughs) Oh no. Oh no, it's a person. Um, Oh, is this the concierge? Okay, that's less scary than I thought. Um, but why, why are all of your light bulbs red, man? That's okay. Um, and to, um, yeah, to kind of give readers a look behind the scenes at how our publications work and what kind of things we're struggling with when it comes to, um, keeping our publications alive, whether it's for a year or for 50 years, um, and yeah, so there's going to be some amazing stories on the celebrating Briar Patch's history side. Sarah, for example, uh, and Mike Goldhawk are writing a piece about um, New Breed magazine, which is a magazine of the um, militant Métis resurgence in Saskatchewan uh, and New Breed's close connection to Briar Patch in like the 70s and 80s. Um, there is um, a story about how Briarpatch survived a number of different funding cuts throughout its lifetime, um, including an NDP government that pulled provincial funding when it didn't like Briarpatch criticizing uranium development in the province, us losing our charitable status because we did too many political activities, that kind of stuff, um, and you know what it what it took for us to keep on after those kind of like really devastating funding cuts. Um, And then on the uh, indie media landscape side of the issue, there's going to be stories about um, the New Brunswick Media Co-op, which is really cool because like speaking of ghouls, the Irving family um, and their chokehold over the province of New Brunswick um, and the media in New Brunswick. And so the New Brunswick Media Co-op like doing really cool, important work out there. Um, And stories about... Uh, Google and Meta's sort of reaching their sticky little tentacles into. Oh no! Oh Jesus! What does this guy want? <laughs> Why doesn't he have a face? Why is he breathing like that? Oh no! Um, yeah. Anyway, so those are a few of the stories that are coming from Briar Batch's 50th anniversary issue. Um, yeah, stories about um, what it means for, you know, having a, a healthy left indie um, media landscape in Canada and what that could achieve in terms of shifting the political needle. No, 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 no. God, what's, <laughs> what's, what's behind you? There was something on that wall. Yeah, oh, it's, it's a plan. Me. It's a plan. <laughs> It was making really scary shadows. 
Okay. God, fuck. Uh, <laughs> this is, um, I don't watch horror movies a lot. I do enjoy them, but I like often, again, like my nervous system just like can't, won't allow me to um, do things that are stressful. Uh, so this is really a lot for me. How's everyone else doing right now? Uh, I'm noticing that uh, every character we've encountered so far is a man. Uh, so I just want to point out that there is no gender equity uh, in this this horrifying game. Jesus Christ. What? Uh, that's there's the... a portrait of a lady. Oh. <laughs> this is what... the Paul Van Gogh holding Vincent Van Gogh's. Oh, no. Right? That's that painting. I don't know what that means or why a big copy of it's hanging in this apartment building. I don't have any culture. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know art. I wouldn't say I can decode pixelated art very well, but <laughs> it's a skill I'm willing to develop. So honestly, John, I'm impressed. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Jerry Lewis earlier because I we had been talking about him uh, a couple of days ago as well. And I Googled him and I was like, wait, that's Jerry Lewis? Like, that's Jerry Lewis? And then I realized that for my entire life, when I have pictured Jerry Lewis, I have pictured Little Richard. <laughs> I thought that Jerry Lewis and Little Richard were the same person. <laughs> so anyway uh you never stop learning and growing you should trust me when i bring information because i know things and i'm aware of things uh and i'm obviously <laughs> the kind of person who can be counted on to know what's going on yeah really on top of pop culture that's sarah <laughs> um i was thinking when you brought up the um irvings i was like huh my, one of my favorite things to do is play rounds of fuck, Mary kill, but with chunks of people or objects because it's fun. And I think a good round of that would be some Canadian monopolies, perhaps the Irvings, mm -hmm. the Westons and mm -hmm. the, Rog the Rogers. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a good one. Thank you. Three families scarier than anything we're going to see in this game. Absolutely. Oh, Is there an option to kill all three? <laughs> no. Parody. No. Jokes. I think, no, you, you, you're approaching it the wrong way. So the, the one that you have to kill is just like the one that you think is like the biggest problem and like like the one that is has its tentacles in the most places. And then the one that you're going to fuck, you have to figure out, okay, which one is like the most fragile emotionally and it's going to be absolutely devastated when they get fucked and they're never called back. And then the one that you marry uh, is the one that you are hoping that you can just put in an attic, uh, Mr. Rochester style, style and, and back away. So it's just, it, it's not a strategy of being like, uh, which one would I prefer to fuck or marry? But it's like, <laughs> which ones, how can they be manipulated? And, and which one is the most manipulable in, in these specific areas? So I feel like the Rogers family must be pretty manipulable because like, I don't know, you know, like 
like John Tory being on their board and like I mean it's unclear like who's manipulating who in that scenario really but I just yeah I feel like I feel like the 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 Rogers maybe I would marry maybe I would marry the Rogers family and keep them in the attic and then I would and then I would you know have a lot of sway over like telecom uh the telecom monopoly in Canada um man the Irvings? I don't know. I need to think about this more. Who else Who else has decided on who they might fuck, marry, or kill? Yeah, I... I, mm, I don't know. I don't know. See, the reason that I, I made this framework for how you should probably, like, approach it is because I have no idea what my answer would be, and I, I cannot possibly, like... <laughs> I just, I simply don't know. <laughs> I can't think of an answer, but I can think of a framework. That's right. That's right. I can think of how you should answer. <laughs> okay. Well, John, then it's your turn. Oh, uh, geez. Uh, on that metric, I guess we've got to, uh, I'm just going to, I'm too scared to click on this door. So I'm going to take a mi- minute to, to answer <laughs> yeah. the question. Uh, I think you've got to fuck the Rogers because they're messy. They love the drama. They're all over the place. Uh, it's going to be a wild ride. Uh, you, I guess, marry the Irvings. They love to throw their money around. They love to, uh, you know, they love a, they love a patronage style situation. So like you'd be set up, you know, you'd, uh, you'd be ready to rock. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you, the hypothetically parody uh, jokes kill Galen Weston. <laughs> mortal enemy, a man I opened an email from the other day in the Briarpatch office and almost went like apoplectic with rage. It was the one where it's like, Galen's announcing a price freeze. Yeah. And his title I knew my flooded. answer to this question days before it was asked. Oh my God. Yeah, I feel like it would be the most viscerally satisfying right now that like <laughs> hypothetically jokes kill Galen Weston just because of that email and the like smug little shit eating smile on his face um yeah I support that and the Irvings they like they got that vertical integration you know like if you marry the Irvings you have like everything from like energy to pulp and paper to media you know it's like you you can like you, you can do a lot with that I think if you have an Irving in your attic Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I think that I would marry Weston simply so that I would be able to like get the pharmacy part really punch a hole in my medical bed <laughs> and then I think that John is totally right that the Rogers are the most emotionally unstable and thus like messy fuck you know um sarah it was your framework that's really what brought me here today capable capable of answering the question i posed i was thinking the other day that like we should just like the rich people can keep their money but they all just have to like move to an island in the middle of nowhere and they they like have no access like they can't leave and they can just all be there and they can be rich and they can show off their stuff to one another and they can do whatever deranged shit that rich people do and then the rest of us can have society 
uh, we can just have democracy and society and, and the rich people can go away. Uh, to We can to put somewhere. them on one of their little tax haven islands. Yeah. Or one yeah. of those islands where they like to like hunt human beings, but it's only <laughs> them, no other human beings. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think they should be dispersed simply because I worry about the consolidation, you know? Yeah. But they would probably eat each other off, so I I think it'd be fine. I I think you're right there. They would, they would. And I don't know, like, how great any of their survival skills would be, right? Like, I don't know that they would be able to manage uh, without... uh, uh, team of servants and uh, were there is there a prison cell in your apartment building John is this there were, yeah there was like a couple of different sets of like bars that have been uh, well one of them still active and then the other one is like blown open I don't know what it means I'm looking for a horse if anyone sees a horse <laughs> John, can you kind of like recap what the notes have been saying so far? Because I I feel like oh. I've lost the gist of like what is going on in this. The game. notes have been saying, "Don't trust what's in your head. Don't trust them. You're not safe in your apartment. Normal apartment building stuff. I find stuff like this in my apartment building lobby all the time. Um, <laughs> this is just a renter's lot, you know. Um, and then this person needs silence, but it's noisy. They're saying that. Uh, the flicker and hum, the horse points to it. Wait, what? There? Oh, there is a horse. Oh, I thought you were joking about there being a horse. <laughs> no, like, I, I need to see a man a about a horse. We need to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it's a man. There aren't enough opportunities to see a man about a horse these days. I, I think it's really, really unfortunate. Yeah, like, what is this? Why would you not, like, when you were viewing the apartment, why would you not like see this and decide not to move in? Like I, I don't, I don't understand the thought. Some process. places the vacancy rates are like so low uh, that you know you just kind of have to take the apartment that has the cobweb table. Right. Yeah. yeah there's no horses in this image. Is that could they could are there bars because it's like a stable and there's a horse behind the. <laughs> behind the bars i'm trying to make this less spooky i'm like oh this is it's not a spooky basement it's just a stable full of horses Uh, hey everyone producer marino here uh this is actually what happens under socialism because you know they have to converge the apartments and prisons okay i'll shut up now (laughs) (laughs) there are plants in these prisons they are holding plants in in jail here this is the future that liberals want (laughs) liberals i'm not gonna say who but i was looking at the the poster and i was like there seems to be a liberal on this list of people who are participating but i that is all i will say because it's in poor taste to to indicate and people can decide uh of their own free will which person i think is a liberal you don't Um, need to call me out like that sarah not not here among us but um uh in the the larger larger community I know you're a liberal, Simon. I know constantly just out here with your radical centrism, uh, <laughs> trying to, to bring pragmatic solutions. To, yeah. 
Yeah, I'd actually like to marry the the Westons, Irvings, and uh, the Rogers family. Actually, that's that's my <laughs> that's my position. Legalize polygamy. I want them all. <laughs> I saw someone, uh, one of my friends on on Twitter, posted um, a fuck Mary kill for diversity, equity, and inclusion. That <laughs> was really funny because then there was this white person in the mentions who like a hundred percent did not get it who was like um actually can I fuck and marry um all three and um kill none of them I was like that's not the answer (laughs) Uh, sir tap into the vibe just just gently yeah gently do it the room White people are really bad at reading the room and like really bad at like jokes. Like I like nine times out of ten, I noticed that like white people don't understand jokes. Oh shit, what's in here? What was that noise? Uh, there was also something crawling in this hallway. Oh, Mm, are we talking like a cockroach or like a human? Something in between. Oh no! Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) She's. I hate this. Oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Another note. How do we get to it? It's behind the cage. Honestly, I have really long arms. I could. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I imagine you're like Elastigirl in The Incredibles. Okay, well, do you know what? I am really tall and whenever I meet people in person, like I think the first time I meet anyone off the internet, which is like a shocking amount of the time, you know, uh, <laughs> everyone's like, what? I know it's, it's a surprise on Zoom. Yeah. We're all the same height. I would not have guessed you were, were tall and I don't know why I have, I have no idea. Uh, what that thought process is. There are other people that I've met where I'm like, wow, you're like, they're, they're like much shorter. And I'm like, but what, at what point did I think that like make that decision uh, to do that, that they would perceived as short? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> um, as I think we're wrapping up, it's a, it's a great time to maybe plug things. Yeah, we should plug things. Um, absolutely. I, I will first plug my downer of a podcast, which actually can be fun sometimes, uh, and has been like a lot of fun to make and it's called Unmaking Saskatchewan. Uh, and you can find it wherever podcasts are available. I just put out a new episode on Friday. Uh, so that is out there for you folks and everyone else plug your pluggables. I'll plug Briar Patch. Um, briarpatchmagazine.com you can read all of our articles there the magazine has only made it to 50 years because of reader support and subscription so if you can uh, sign up for a subscription and you'll receive a beautiful copy of the magazine at your door every other month Um, and also I'll do the plug for Harbinger Um, we're really grateful that Harbinger invited us to this telethon it's been like super fun um, getting to chat with folks and I mean I don't know well, I guess fun playing this game also horrifying um, John's doing like a speed run right now <laughs> he's like we got we got three minutes let's fucking 
figure out what's going on here. Where's the horse? Um, but yeah, to support Harbinger, um, you can donate on the stream or go to harbingermedianetwork.com and be a monthly donor um, and help them keep supporting amazing podcasts like Unmaking Saskatchewan and Invisible Institutions. Yeah, you can like, subscribe, follow Invisible Institutions on Twitter, Instagram, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, you should really get next month's issue of Briar Patch. I have a long-awaited article that I'm really excited to share, and it was great to hang out with everyone. John, you got anything to plug? Uh, just everything that's been plugged, the Harbinger uh, Media Network, its podcasts, including uh, Unmaking Saskatchewan and Invisible Institution, and of course, Briar Patch Magazine. I'll say the same thing I said at the top. Uh, you got to fund the independent media that you want to see uh, in the world. And if you want it to be in a capacity where it can make change. So uh, yeah, do that. Donate, subscribe, uh, tell your friends, share it with people. That's one of actually the most effective things um, that happens with Briar Patch, with all sorts of independent media is actually sharing it and talking about it with people um, is the way that it, it grows and the way that it builds uh, collective, helps build collective power. John Cameron's exactly right. Hi, guys. I've been enjoying, uh, the, the, I say enjoying, but I've actually been terrified watching the stream. It's been extremely scary. But this is kind of fun. Um, actually, speaking of um, sort of cross-promoting and, and amplifying work, uh, I have a, a little missive from Briar Patch that I haven't opened yet. So this is a live uh, unenveloping. Um, I think that's something that you can see on Twitter. People open their envelopes and see what they got inside. So I'm going to find out right now because uh, it says here, achievement unlocked. I'm wondering what that could be because I've been a subscriber for a few years. So I'm just opening that up. Uh, really curious like what could be right in now. here and you're announcing the passing of a major milestone you outlived the queen of england sure she was 96 years old it's not a big surprise uh but it's great that uh the some of the magazine's mortal enemies are still kicking well into old age that's right briar patch is turning 50 years old in 2023 and harbinger's really excited about that because it's so cool that there's this essentially legacy institution that um, is completely in sync with the values that basically everybody at Harbinger has and that we are all kind of like, I don't know, on the same team and stuff. So I'm really excited for your guys' 50th year. And that's why I was really happy that you guys could all come together. So Megan and Sarah, thank you very much for sort of facilitating this. It, like you guys had a meeting beforehand. You talked about what you're going to do. I'm really happy that the streaming actually worked so you could enjoy this video game. John, what is the name of the video game? I didn't catch that. Oh, the video game is a, a game called Hollow Head. It's by uh, uh, developer Rebecca on Itch.io. I got it as part of the uh, the racial justice bundle uh, oh. that Itch had in the, the summer of 2020. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I love it. And very bold, uh, very bold for Briar Patch to be hosting the first gaming stream. Um, <laughs> like outside of Alberta Advantage, nobody is doing that on the left. And I think that gamers' rights is going to be something we're going to be seeing more and more of uh, in the coming years. Isn't that right, Sarah? Yes. <laughs> uh, I can't wait for the, the gamers' rights for, uh, 
episode of I'm Making Saskatchewan. And I can't wait for the gamers' rights issue of Briar Patch. Uh, maybe, <laughs> Hell yeah. Maybe when Simon checks out for her sabbatical, uh, the next editor. Um, th- think about that in the hiring committee, really uh, trying to highlight uh, some gamers and bringing bringing that that unrepresented minority into this space. Megan, do you think that could be helpful for sort of uh, increasing diversity in, in the Canadian left? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, e-girls rights are absolutely essential and uh, truly what would we do without it then? So you guys, this has been so cool. Um, and honestly, the stream has been awesome so far, like in terms of the quality and in terms of just like having people come out and be themselves and do their thing. It's been so awesome. We had Hillary Agro and Jess Green in the first hour talking about uh, COP27 and talking about Hillary's work uh, in, in advocacy. Uh, Press Progress was on for hour two. We had The Breach and CUTV for hour three. The Hoser and new uh, GTA Alts Weekly, The Grinds for hour four. Darts and Letters and Mitchell Thompson for hour five and Pivo for hour six. So having Briar Patch on Making Saskatchewan and Invisible Institutions get to anchor hour seven has been really awesome. Um, we have another big hour coming up. We got five more hours. Uh, and I'm going to sort of give a preview of that, but first I'll just sort of say bye to you guys and say, thank you so much for, for doing this. And, um, yeah, this has been awesome. Any last words? Thanks for having us. Donate to Harbinger. Thank you to Marino for running the tech for this as well. Absolutely. Yes. Huge thanks to Marino. Yeah. He's on his 14th Red Bull. Uh, he's looking, uh, his pallor is corpse-like, but um, <laughs> that's okay. But um, no, he's actually looking great and he hasn't been drinking Red Bulls. He said he had like a few sips and then stopped because he was getting too anxious. And I think that was really wise. So Halloween is the season of wisdom. And I thank you guys for joining us on the I Know What You Did Last Telethon. Um, so we'll be in touch. I'll talk to you guys later. And thank you. Thanks, Andrea. So uh, we do have five more hours coming up, including starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Pullback, uh, which is the ethical... Uh, consumption podcast with Kyla Hewson and Kristen Pugh. They're going to be sitting down with Lauren Latour from Green Majority Radio to interview David Camfield, a Winnipeg-based academic whose show Victor's Children is on the Harbinger Network and whose new book, uh, Future on Fire, is uh, coming out from Fernwood Publishing uh, right, right, right around now, this month. After that, it's Desmond Cole and Shama Rangwala's replay. After that, the Alberta Advantage. After that, the Forgotten Corner with Scott Schmidt and Jeremy Appel. And uh, hour 12, it's Kainagata, Harsha Walia, and friends uh, to wrap up the stream. So we have a lot more going on. If you're watching the stream right now and you're wondering how can you help this community grow and thrive, uh, we are a loose collective of 50 podcasts and video shows from coast to coast. We have massive cumulative reach, like 100,000 listeners and viewers every month, but we need supporters like you to step up and help us keep it going. We're aiming in our uh, month-long membership campaign to reach 50 new members. And uh, today we've gained three more. Thank you very much to Amber Tucker, Harrison Brindage, and Romy Garrido. Uh, Thank you guys for for really stepping up and helping us out and becoming monthly uh, supporters of Harbinger. If you can support Harbinger for just five bucks a month, you get the annual merch mail-out with stickers, pins, and postcards. And at the $10 a month level, uh, you're our mutual aid sustainer. You get all the merch and a special new release from our friends at Between Lines Books. Um, so do please consider supporting us. It, it's really helpful and it helps to grow uh, this uh, community. So thank you for tuning in and stay tuned in just a few minutes for Pullback, Green Majority Radio, and David Campfield.
We're back with hour seven of the I Know What You Did Last Telethon Harbinger uh, fundraiser and telethon. And I'm super excited to have Kristen Pugh in Ottawa. Hi, Kristen. Hey, how's it going? Lauren Latour from Green Majority, also in Ottawa. Also in Ottawa. So stoked to be here. Kyla <laughs> Hewson, the pullback podcast partner of Kristen Pugh in Vancouver. Hi, Kyla. Hi. And David Camfield is the host of Victor's Children. He's in Winnipeg. Hi, David. Hello. I was saying just off screen, off stream, I'm really excited to have you guys coming together and uh, really having a themed hour block where it's Green Majority, Lauren representing Green Majority, a show that's new to Harbinger, but not new at all because you guys have been around for eight hundred episodes and it's such a cool show. I'm so happy it's part of Harbinger. Pullback is like the perfect show to be exploring the themes I think you guys will be talking about in this hour because it is an ethical consumption podcast and you know everything about the environment comes down to people's consumption and David's new book Future on Fire uh, is like a really I think important book that uh, was released from Fernwood Publishing uh, just like last week, basically, I think you had the launch. So the timing is just perfect to really be having you guys come together and discuss this uh, on, on the telethon today. Um, I'm going to leave you guys to it. I urge uh, viewers to um, definitely check out Victor's Children, Pullback and Green Majority Radio. Find them wherever you get your podcasts and definitely smash that uh, subscribe button to throw Harbinger a few dollars. So uh, without further whatever, um, I'm going to leave you guys to it. Oh, wait, Kyla, you dressed up for Halloween? I did. That's, that's I did. Cool and you, you explained to us uh, already, but you, you were dressed up. Um, where, where were you before the stream? I was at an improv class. <laughs> okay. So was it, was it a good class? How's your vibe? It was. I was like the only one who dressed up and I went like full out. Like, look, I'm so I'm not just a cat. I'm Mr. Mistopheles from Cats. And you know that I am because I got this cute little jumper and my ears are kind of shiny and I've got purple shorts on that are like, <laughs> they're like, they're, they're velvet. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. And yeah. so, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to Acapella, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Acapella, probably to wrap up the hour after you guys talk about David's book, just to sort of lighten the mood. Okay. Awesome, guys. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you all so much for being here. And um, I'll leave you to it. Thanks, Andre. Um, yeah. Hi, everybody. I, I'm going to start us off because Kristen gave us like this amazing itinerary for our episode. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, we're here with Lauren and David. Lauren's with Green Majority Radio, and David has um, just written a book that I read today, actually. So um, we're going to talk about that in this hour as well. And uh, yeah, we're we're really excited to chat with you guys, Kristen. Yes, very excited. Um, so we are tentatively calling this Greenhouse of Horrors because what is scarier than talking about the climate crisis? Um, yeah, so we're really excited to kick off this conversation. Uh, so Lauren, David, how's it going? Uh, how are things? So stoked to be here. This is my first kind of Harbinger fam event, and I could not be, yeah, could not be happier. I'm thrilled. So excited to talk with you all. So excited to talk about David's book. I have to confess, it is, it's, I've purchased a copy. I'm planning on reading it on the plane to COP tomorrow or Tuesday. So, uh, so this is going to be good. This is like, this is like pre-study for me. 
spoilers. Your anti-cough antidote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm going to need it, like, desperately. <laughs> Just on the plane with the book and a Coke, you know. <laughs> ready for cop. Ready to go. The, the Cokes are free at this cop, so. <laughs> My God. Devastating. <laughs> um, okay, so in the spirit of Halloween, Kristen thought that we could all start by talking about what is the scariest thing about the climate crisis right now, which is a very light way to start. Thanks, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, I think maybe you should go first. Oh, my gosh. That no, truly horrifying. Good job, folks. <laughs> um, I think the thing that's been freaking me out the most lately is okay. There's there's a couple different ways I could go. This maybe isn't like the truly most like viscerally horrifying thing that comes along with 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 climate change. But I think one of the things I've been finding most frustrating recently is I was I was in a conference a couple weeks ago with a lot of like policy bigwigs about um, talking about climate change and climate policy, specifically within the, within the context of like so-called Canada. And I think one of the things that I'm finding scariest in the wake of that is it was just like a really good, it and COP upcoming is, is always a really good reminder that we have been at this fight in various capacities for so long, like so long. Um, and realizing the glacial pace of progress is, is always like, it's a punch to the gut every single time. And, and it's ultimately because like, we know it's like, yeah, we, we know the quote unquote solutions. We know all about the wind turbines. We know all about like public transit and blah, 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 blah. We have all the solutions. It's the fact that, that our political and our economic systems aren't set up for the kind of transition and the big, the big systemic shift we need. Um, so that's, that's, what's been freaking me out lately, at least. It's a good one, <laughs> David. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say the same kind of thing. Um, I mean, rec just recently I've just been thinking a lot as I walk around my neighborhood about just the uh, extreme car dependence of Winnipeg and you know that's kind of, kind of heavy right um, even though I don't live in a suburb or anything there's just you know crap bus service and a lot of um, you know it's a very sprawled city um, but uh, just inexorable just look at climate action tracker look at what it's saying it's it is very frightening far more frightening than anything I will see on the streets tomorrow evening. yeah definitely I'll maybe lighten it up. Uh, actually, I don't know if this is lighter at all, but uh, I'm most afraid of the diseases that will get released when the permafrost melts. <laughs> I think oh. that for me is the scariest. Yeah. <laughs> Kyla? Um, yeah. Like for me, you know, I haven't really, I, I guess I haven't been thinking about it too much because I was like, this is a weird thing to say live on a telecast but I did my very first therapy session last week ever and she was and it was weird because I was like I don't I don't know how to talk to you you're a stranger and um she was like well tell me what's been bothering you lately and I just burst into tears and I was like climate change oh. so you know <laughs> I'm doing well <laughs> Pro tip, not even a pro tip. Um, but if you ever want to, I'm sure your therapist is amazing and wonderful and doing a great job and doing a great job with you. But if you ever want to speak to other folks who are like similarly experiencing climate grief, if you follow the climate chaplain on Instagram, they um have these really amazing um 
climate grief circles that they host Mm. every so often. And some of them are kind of designed and facilitated specifically for folks who do climate work. And some of them are facilitated specifically or not specifically, but like for a more general audience. But if that's ever like a conversation you're feeling called to engage in because you just want to be around other like-minded people who are in sheer desperados, um, the climate chaplain on Instagram is a wonderful person to follow for that. That is a really excellent point. It's just like a lot of it is coming from the fact that like, I feel like I'm not like everyone around me doesn't seem to be engaged in it. Like you go to work at your regular job and you're like, no, like you guys are using a pod machine. Like this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually like, I don't know, this is probably going to be like way off of like the order that you wanted to do things, Kristen, but it actually ties really nicely into talking about David's book. Mm. Like, a lot of David, what you talk about in your book is how to engage like as a group. And sometimes I really struggle with that as somebody who like, I get it. Things are really messed up. How do I like overthrow the system now? You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the book doesn't promise an answer to that. There's no easy fix, right? Uh, I'm not selling green snake oil. I hope. The unfortunate thing is I would buy it. I'm desperate enough that like, (laughs) I'd take the snake oil. I'd take the appeasement. Where's our climate Donald Trump, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I want to go to a rally. (laughs) Well, there's there's a a line of uh, Eugene Debs, who was a socialist in the late 19th, early 20th centuries in the early 20th century in the U.S., who said, uh, too long if you have been waiting for a Moses to lead them to freedom. I wouldn't be that person because if you could be let out, you could be led back again. Mm. And I think there's a lot to take in about that. I mean, we could talk about Brazil today too, right? Because it's the second round of the Brazilian election. And that's... Sorry, have you not all seen the news? Has it been called? I haven't. It's been called. Who won? For Bolsonaro? Lula. Yes! <laughs> Lula! <laughs> what a strange person to cheer for. And yet... <laughs> and yet I'm cheering. Bolsonaro! Very exciting. Wow. Well, that okay. That does explain why someone in the in the I, I am watching the Twitter cha- or the the Twitch. Sorry, the Twitch chat. And someone was like Lula, and I was like, I don't get it. Did someone just win a race? And they did a political race, one that I was actually paying attention to, but I'm not all there. <laughs> sorry, did not mean to did not mean to to get us off yes, track. Back, back, alert. No, it's, back it's to you, super David, relevant please. to climate no, change, though. <laughs> I, I just think, yeah, every it's one of those things where it was it's a. Bolsonaro's win would have been just truly awful. And the sad thing is that Lula's come a long way from where he started politically and ended up being the candidate backed by, you know, the kind of smarter liberal sections of capitalists in Brazil, as well as everybody on the left and a lot of liberals and and so on, everybody trying to stop Bolsonaro. Uh, And so in terms of, you know, potentially slowing down the destruction of the Amazon, this is a good thing Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And the fact that people aren't going to have to be dealing with, uh, well, barring a coup, right, um, won't have to be dealing with like intensified repression. There's more space for social movement organizing, which is fantastic. Like, that's important. But you know, it's kind of like Biden versus Trump, right? I mean, not that Lewis is as bad as Biden, but it, it'd be, uh, <laughs> you know, just the, the uh, one of those situations where, uh, you know, there was clearly one really really appalling ghastly outcome and it's been avoided so that's very i'm, I'm glad i didn't know that coming out of the podcast because now my spirits a little bit up compared to before. <laughs> yeah the polls were not looking good earlier today so that was such a relief <laughs> yeah david um, you in your 
in your book, sorry, um, we're talking about kind of like how to, um, like how to engage on this level where like, like even though Lula won, um, we know that Bolsonaro has like this huge base of supporters who are willing to like, like engage violently for what they believe in. And what they believe in is to burn down the Amazon rainforest because it's good for business. So what do we do? (laughs) Fix it. You promised answers. Just a little question. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, but the the book is a, it's a short book, which kind of riffs. One way to think about it is it's kind of a riff on Naomi Klein's line, um, but only mass social movements can save us now. Um, from her book, this changes everything. And what I'm just trying to do in the book, it's it's not so much about, um, you know, it's not about this much the science of climate change or that kind of thing. It assumes that people know something about that if they're going to read a book like this. It's a, about the politics um, and just trying to ask the question, well, we know what the solutions are. We know what climate justice would be, right? If we're talking about a just transition from fossil fuels and the other drivers of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, we want a just transition. So not just a transition, but one which means that, you know, the majority of people don't suffer, right? The people's lives get better for the most part. Um, and that those who are responsible for this mess are the ones who are made to pay, um, right? And a transition that is one that uh, is an egal- it's egalitarian, more democratic, and so on. Um, that kind of a, a just transition that, that weakens oppression, like, that's the goal. And if lots of people agree on that, how do we get there, right? What can we learn from history about change and how it happens? And so, you know, it asks questions like, are, you know, business is going to get us there? Are status quo political parties going to get us there? And what I argue is that if it's going to happen, it's only going to be because mass social movements drive it forward and, and force governments kicking and screaming into uh, a just transition and you know that's that's a hard truth i think um so you know i i'd love to find a way of making a joke about it but i don't think i've got that capacity right now uh, yeah so and I, it, it is it's a horrifying truth but i think we don't do ourselves any disservice with false hope at this point that like we do need to you know commit to doing whatever we can to uh to build mass social movements, but we can't just pull them out of our back pocket. And we have come a long way since the fall of 2019, where there was a lot more hope around because of the, you know, the youth mobilization for the global climate strike in September of 2019. And all those people who took to the streets and walked out of classes haven't gone away. Um, But in this part of the world, you know, so-called Canada, um, you know, we don't have, I have seen would say we don't really have a climate movement at the moment. I mean, we have some people still organizing. There's lots of p- potential and lots of people, but there's not a lot of people in motion right now. I and mean, Quebec's a little different. It's been mm-hmm. better there. But uh, I just think we need to take in that truth about mass social movements being the key and then do what we can to build uh, you know, where, wherever we're located, right? And there's no simple solution. There's no, uh, there, there's no gimmick. Um, I don't think it's, and there's lots of different things people can do. It's not just about being involved in a climate justice group, although people should, if, you know, that's an important thing to consider, but people who have an understanding of climate justice can be involved in all sorts of other organizations and working to promote the politics of climate justice in their union, their community organization, um, faith community, uh, whatever it might be, right? Uh, Because no, I think we can expect the unexpected in the years ahead. There are going to be a lot of things thrown at us by the way that the climate crisis, economic crisis, and so on, it's going to generate um, 
a lot of uh, a lot of pain, a lot of responses to that in our society, and we need people who understand climate justice to be in all those places where people are are living through this and where collective action is starting to happen, even if it's not happening with uh, climate justice as the starting point. So people might be starting to mobilize around something to do with the cost of living or around public transport or something else. But if people who are supporting climate justice can be involved in those kinds of uh, collective struggles, then we can make links between whatever is moving people at a particular moment and the kind of just transition that we need. Yeah, I'm wondering whether it seems as though we're getting a clearer picture of what like the climate era looks like, partially because we have sort of experience with more intense disasters over like a decade now, and partially because it's something that we're starting to see more clearly in data, like um, Teresa Tam, like the chief health officer, um, her state of Canada's health report really focused on climate change this year. Um, And there's also been like studies that are starting to look at what really are the implications for climate um, of climate change for inequality and poverty and things like that? Um, but I'm wondering, like, one of the barriers to climate action, um, I think, seems to be that it's it's pretty complicated and maybe people have a difficult time grasping those impacts. So I'm wondering if um, either Lauren or David, you could talk a little bit about um, what are some of the things that you would like to see immediately in response to climate change. Lauren, you go ahead. Um, I'm going to ask you to like narrow down that question for me a little bit, because in terms of like things we'd like to see immediately, like that's, oh my God, the, the universe, like there's, there's almost too much. So are you, are you talking about in terms of like movement building policy solutions? What is it? What is it that you're kind of like, let's focus on policy solutions for now. We'll talk about movements a little later. Yeah. Okay. Vibes. I think I have to, I have to like kind of pick one and go with it. And, um, I think one of the biggest things that we need to see right now in like setting aside all like the movement building and stuff like that is commitments from global North nations for um, loss and damage funding in the South. Mm -hmm. And I know that doesn't sound terribly exciting and it's, and it's in some ways like a, it's not a market-based solutions, but it's, it's a financial one. Um, We have commitments, although they are like quite anemic commitments from global North countries around mitigation um, and adaptation funding. But what we don't have are strong, solid commitments for loss and damage funding. Um, And for those who might not be super familiar with the term, there's the idea that like you've got your mitigative solutions, which are like... um, like a, like a wind turbine because it like mitigates the efforts of climate change over time. Cause you're putting less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You've got your adaptive measures, measures like a seawall, for instance, um, to like help with storm surges or whatever. And then you have loss and damage funding because there's the understanding that, and we're seeing it right now, uh, whether it's in the global South or even like, Hey, on the West coast, um, that people are already experiencing loss due to the effects of climate change. So people are losing their homes, people are losing family members, people are losing sources of income in their communities. Um, And as culpable parties in the global North, we need to be financially responsible for that. Um, So that's one of the biggest things that would be really good to see really quickly because it would go a long way in improving um, the health and well-being of of folks in the global South um, and in in those sort of most affected climate communities. Again, that's just one that's like the first thing that comes to mind because I've got cop on the brain, but (laughs) that's a big one. That's a really important one as well. Uh, David, any thoughts? Well, no, I agree. I mean, like the the bleeding of the global South by the global North, right, is part of the problem. And Mm -hmm. so to have 
that happening at the same time as the worst effects of heating are happening in the so-called global south, right? I mean, it's these are absolutely vital things to, to fight for. But yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that are that are needed, but the, all the kinds of things that were being talked about several years ago more around the Green New Deal, I think are still very relevant because in order to make these things meaningful to you know ordinary people, everyday people, to talk about how to make people's lives better in ways like, you know, for example, expanding affordable quality public transit um, in order to get, you know reduce the dependence on the, the car and so on. Like that's a, a meaningful kind of, of action and people can campaign around improvements to public transit. Um, and you don't have to actually start by talking about climate, right? You start by talking about what can make people's lives better in the urban environment or for that matter, creating public transit alternatives in rural communities. Um, yeah. And, and linking communities too, because I mean, it's something that um, I'm sure most of our listeners are also located in so-called Canada, but it's like with the loss of bus transit systems, uh, like, like inter intercity, not intracity, but like intercity transit links. Um, it's, we're leaving a whole lot of people stranded in, in communities that, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a justice-based issue for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Wondering on the on the sort of flip side of that question, are there any false solutions that you're hearing a lot lately that really annoy you? <laughs> Electric cars. Mm, good one. <laughs> yeah. You seen the the, the the meme that was going around about remember electric cars there to save the auto industry, not the not the planet. EVs are a huge one that so many movement actors are, and I say movement using that term very loosely, um, movement actors are so hung up on, for instance, that conference I went to a couple of weeks ago, it was like, oh my gosh, if I hear electric vehicles invoked one more time, I'm going to smash my head <laughs> against something. Um, so EVs for sure. And then the other one that we've been hearing increasingly, I feel like, especially from, um, uh, from provincial and federal governments is like blue hydrogen and the mm-hmm. idea that it's like hydrogen being um fueled by quote unquote renewable natural gas <laughs> natural <laughs> gas is already yeah. is already like not a misnomer but like is already like marketing spin and then you add renewable on top of that like it's so yeah it's so, in no so, way renewable yeah. <laughs> no it is in no way renewable so renewable natural gas blue hydrogen and CCUS in general, like, it's mm-hmm. like, those are like the big ones. And we're seeing a lot of investment into them recently. Um, I feel like they're like Christia Freeland, if you're looking at a federal level, it's like, she's a bit of a champion of, of some of those solutions and it's, and it's becoming increasingly frustrating and, um, and disheartening to realize how much time and energy is being diverted from real solutions towards these, like literally like you like false solutions that are just, they're dead ends. They're locking us into more burning and more, um, like systems of fossil fuel extraction and burning. So it's, tis a bummer to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Kristen, I, I have one. I have one. Yeah, go. Um, it's just a, it's just a jump off of Lauren's cause, um, I was on, I saw, I, okay. So this is like the Sunday of Halloween weekend. And yesterday was the, sorry guys, this is a little bit of a, like totally off topic, but I spent the <laughs> night in, I was like watching my friend's black cat, uh, because my friend was attending a funeral and my friend lives in a cabin in the woods by himself. So I spent Saturday night of Halloween weekend alone in a cabin in the woods with a black cat. Um, and like funerals were involved. So all that to say is that I was like on the island this morning and I took a ferry in today. And on the ferries, I noticed that it, it says um, powered by natural, because I saw another ferry go past us, powered by natural gas and the natural, gra- uh, 
natural gas is written in green and has a leaf next to it. And uh, I'm like, Spacey <laughs> fairies, stop. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's really upsetting. <laughs> yeah, that is upsetting. Yeah. And also like, you could not pay me all the money in the world to stay in a cabin by myself on Halloween weekend. No, I didn't. Hard pass. I didn't like think of it until like well into the night and then I was like oh my gosh I'm gonna <laughs> die tonight like I've really set myself up for failure <laughs> this is how it ends for me <laughs> yeah I, I I hadn't thought it through at all and then I was like yeah in the house and I was like where am I right now like, what am I doing <laughs> but yeah it's amazing how far a little green leaf and and like I don't know a slightly like modern forward-facing font goes mm-hmm. in in yes. literal greenwashing <laughs> That's yeah. exactly, how did you know that's what it looked like? Were you on the ferry this morning too? <laughs> <laughs> Been on a lot of ferries in my life. <laughs> um, so maybe changing to uh, approaches to addressing the climate crisis. Uh, David, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about eco-socialism, which um, you sort of position as the best avenue for addressing climate change. What does eco-socialism mean and uh, how does it compare to other approaches? I guess I should explain what I mean by eco-socialism, because like a lot of political terms, it can be used to refer to quite different things. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, eco-socialism is a way of talking about an entirely different social order than capitalism. Um, So it's not about simply regulating corporations and uh, passing social reforms. Sometimes people talk about eco-socialism in that way. And of course, don't get me wrong, I'd be all for all sorts of, you know, additional regulations that promote social and ecological justice but um you know leaving society organized on the basis of producing commodities for profit but you know with competing firms and so on uh, leaving it within capitalism and having regulations it's it's still capitalism um i would say so for me eco-socialism would be a society that was based on uh producing on the basis of meeting people's needs and trying to have a non-ecocidal relationship between humanity and the rest of nature and a profoundly democratic way of organizing society where, um, you know, those kinds of decisions would be taken democratically in participatory ways. And there would be genuine democratic ecological planning uh, rather than uh, capitalist markets determining questions around investment, social priorities, and and so on. That's a very long-term goal, but I do think that it should be our political horizon Mm. uh, and the the kind of goal we ultimately are are fighting for. But, you know, in the the here and now, the question is, how can we build, I think, social movements to try to win a just transition, to win major reforms for climate justice? And if we can win that, which would be itself an amazing accomplishment, of course, then that can open up the possibility for more radical, deeper, longer term change, um, you know, and a, a break with capitalism and the beginning of a transition towards what I mean by, by eco-socialism. So I think, you know, supporters of eco-socialism should be involved working with other people in building the climate justice wing of the broader climate movement um, and help, you know, arguing about, I think, the connections between capitalism and, and the crisis that we face, which is, of course, not just about climate change, right? There's a broader ecological crisis. Climate change is just part of it. Um, but you know, I think that's, so that, that's what I think that eco-socialists need to be doing. And it's not a question of having to choose between working for that long-term revolutionary goal and fighting for the changes that we need in the shorter term. It's a question of how do we fight for those shorter-term emergency measures in a way that builds our power to fight for something uh, bigger and bolder in the long term. Yeah, 
That's great. And and I like that you sort of mentioned that it's not just like the climate crisis in isolation. That's something that um, we've been thinking about recently a lot on the podcast uh, that we do. Um, our last episode was looking at deforestation and a lot of that has to do with bio, with biodiversity. And we've lost something like 70% of biodiversity in a very short period of time. So yeah, in addition to emissions, we also need to be worrying about the ecology more broadly. That's a great point. And I'm glad you say that just because, you know, there are people that think that nuclear power, you know, and other kind of techno fixes to address climate change are all we need to be thinking about. And the potential for, you know, pretty horrifying scenarios of ecological crisis, um, if we can, you know, that, that somehow address climate change in some way, although it would be awful, you know, nuclear, nuclear power and geoengineering is not a solution that anybody should be, you know, favoring. Um, but it will also, uh, as you say, not touch all sorts <laughs> of other aspects of the crisis. Geoengineering, that should have been the thing I was most scared of for climate change. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking after I said what I said. Yeah, I was. I recently heard an interview with one of the two authors of the book, Half Earth Socialism, where they were talking about how at the Harvard School, uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard University, where all sorts of people who are going to be trained for elite positions go, right? And the School of Government there, they're being taught all about geoengineering like solar radiation uh, management in their uh, in their classes that are climate related so it tells you what certain kind of strategists are being trained to think about i also was listening to a podcast recently that was talking about geoengineering and it was talking to it with like a scientist who's in that space so it was look like they were looking at it fairly favorably like i wouldn't say totally favorably because that would be extremely alienating to most people at this point but it was almost like one of those gateway interviews where it's like well, this sounds really problematic. And the guy gets a chance to like explain himself. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if you explained yourself though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, really something that like there are a lot of consequences that we haven't thought through and we could potentially really mess up the planet. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. Geoengineering is one of those things that just makes me, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Jurassic Park. And for folks who listen to, yes. to my show, I have probably heard me talk about Jurassic Park a lot. Um, but it, it always like makes me think of that scene where like Dr. Malcolm's like, you you were so caught up with thinking about whether you could, you didn't stop to think about whether or not you should kind of thing. And yeah. it's like, that's, yeah. that's what always comes to mind when I think about folks who are super gung-ho with geoengineering and locked in labs figuring out. Anyway, I don't want to get too disparaging of the scientific community. We love them. <laughs> yeah, They're allies. Because but I mean, yeah. I did see it from this guy's perspective, which was that like he was like, look, someone's gonna do it. So I trust myself to do it. And I'm like, I mean, that a lot of people have I mean, I could see myself having that train of thought. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's the best reason to do something. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and exactly, exactly. So that's why when I was listening to that interview, I was like, look, I see where he's coming from. But like, unless you're thinking about it a little bit more critically, like, like your response, Lauren, which was just like, yeah, but so, (laughs) (laughs) I can see how some, like, it's interesting how it's just now starting to really enter the mainstream. It's pretty fringe before, but now I'm hearing about it. I'm like, this is a pretty mainstream podcast I'm listening to it on. So yeah, maybe we should uh, switch away from this depressing topic and go to organizing for climate action. Um, although my first question is still kind of sad. Uh, so 2019, uh, it seemed to be a bit of a high watermark for climate activism in Canada. 
So I'm wondering if either you, either Lauren or David, if you have thoughts on why we haven't seen the same amount of momentum recently and whether it's something that can be reinvigorated. Well, I can I, go ahead, go, go ahead. Uh, I'll jump in really quickly because I have like, obviously there's a million and one answers to this and there mm-hmm. is no one like hard and fast solution or reason. But I think one of them kind of harkens back to a point David was making about like, if you remember back to like 2019, we had all these amazing youth climate marches. Where has that momentum gone? And I think a lot of it is, again, listeners of of, of the show that I am on, the Green Majority, will have heard me make this point before. But um, I think folks who are like, a little bit older within the movement, um, who wouldn't necessarily be identified as youth have, we've done a huge, huge disservice to those young people who were high schoolers and in, in, in their early twenties coming out of those sort of like youth climate march years, because we didn't equip them with the skills and tools necessary to kind of like ramp up and escalate their, their activism. You've got this whole generation of young people who are like, not afraid of being called activists, not being afraid of engaging with those like really political discussions and, and, and kind of putting themselves on the line physically um, Mm. and bodily. But um, we've only equipped them with one tactic and one tactic does not a revolution make. And um, at a certain point it, I, I wouldn't discredit them if they were becoming disheartened with with, with sort of, um, with the lack of reaction and, and the lack of, um, kind of like their marches aren't getting the goods anymore. And I think that's because we need to teach them how to diversify and how to escalate in those tactics. So I think, I think a lot of it is that, that, that energy is still there, that anger, that fear, those driving forces, that those feelings of togetherness that come with, with organizing and activism are all still present and can easily be tapped into. Um, I think it's just a matter of, of giving young people oh, and people of any age, um, the, the skills and, and tactics and strategies necessary to like re-engage with organizing and activism. Cause I think people are really thirsty for it. Um, I think we saw that at least I saw it. I'm, I'm based in Ottawa, um, on Anishinaabe, um, Algonquin territory. And I know this past, uh, municipal election season was like huge when it came mm-hmm. to like people getting out on the ground and organizing and door knocking. So people are really keen to engage. Um, we just have to help them skill up basically. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it feels like another world <laughs> September of 20, you know, 2019, but so many people flowed right from that too into Wet'suwet'en and solidarity in the beginning of mm-hmm. 2020. And that was really important. So you have all these young people making connections between, you know, climate change, settler colonialism, slogans about system change, not climate change were really common. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, right? And so, um, and so this link back to what you said earlier, Kristen, about the potential for more, uh, you know, new diseases and things that, whether it comes from the melting of the permafrost or other, you know, zoonotic things that we could be facing. Um, you know, there, there could be others like this coming. But yeah, I mean, all those, all that politicization, all that uh, experience of taking action is, you know, still there in the people that went went through it, whatever they're doing now. Um, and it's interesting because it's possible that the next, that we're going to see something that looks a little bit like that, again, but it's also possible, and this was something that was pressed on me when I was doing an interview with Simon Pirani, who's a British writer, he wrote a very good history of fossil fuels called Burning Up. He has a great website, um, People in Nature. Um, but uh, he just kind of raised the question about whether 
we should expect the you know next big mobilizations to be starting around something else potentially right um and this is but not to think that the next wave is going to look like the last one i think we often make that mistake kind of thinking that it's going to look like september 2019 over again like it may well be that the, the recession that's coming we're already mm-hmm. started you know may be the thing that starts throwing up you know different kinds of collective action um, action against injustice, and then so climate not being the starting point, right? And then the question is how to make the connections to climate uh, in terms of the responses to um, the suffering, the responses to recession that are uh, going to be called for in that kind of situation. So, you know, I just think we have to be attentive. And the example, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I think it's really worth thinking about. And that's what happened in France at the end of 2018, early 2019, the so-called mm-hmm. Chile Jaune or Yellow Vest movement, where attacks on diesel fuel uh, called up, you know, sparked a big protest movement. Uh, and that could easily have been something that was just very right wing. But it turned out to be not because lots of people on the left got involved in that uh, response. And, you know, basically people were making connections between inequality and income and wealth and the climate crisis. And the whole thing tended to move in a progressive direction, right? Um, and so, but it, it was very messy, lots of, you know, contradictory ideas, lots of people who've never been involved in anything political before um, coming into that with with all their, you know, their mixture of ideas. And if you are kind of going to expect something to emerge that's pure and just what you want to see, then, you know, and you stand aside, then you just leave it as something which can become a, a ground for the, the far right to, to, to intervene in, right? So I think we have to be prepared for unexpected protests and so on to, to bubble up and for supporters of climate justice to constructively throw ourselves into those kind of things um, in order to shape them. And I, I don't mean something like the convoy protest, right? Sometimes you have something which is really just the, driven by the far right, um, but things that are more contradictory that can still be, you know, where, where the, the, they can be taken in different directions and we have to be prepared for the unexpected. Yeah, and there's it's, lots of, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's funny, David, that you mentioned the convoys because when I told Kristen that I just finished your book, going to jump in really quick and say like but there is something to be said for the fact that although it's like we maybe don't want to be like advertising in the convoy for instance we do need to find a way of of speaking to some of those people that were pulled over because um because the right is and i think the convoy is a demonstration of this the right is doing a better job at talking to a whole lot of people than we are especially when it comes to working class folks um i know Mm -hmm. like in the climate movement um, at least like in a lot of the work I do, we kind of pride ourselves on our, on our growing and increasing and, and increasingly healthy relationships with labor. But that doesn't necessarily mean I, I, I know how to speak to and appeal to and engage with working class folks. Although I myself might be a working class person as well. It, um, so I think the convoy was a big wake up call for, for progressive organizers and, and, and activists that we, <laughs> we're failing folks in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I do think like there is some, the conditions of climate change create what I think will be more fertile ground for those kinds of coalitions. Um, there was a study on, I think it's called the green resilience study. It was done 
recently in a bunch of Canadian communities and basically was looking at a cross section of different classes. They were having like focus groups with people from different backgrounds, including people with lived experience of things like poverty and homelessness. And one of the things that they found is that people feel really disempowered by climate change and that you can connect that quite directly to the lack of financial security that they experience. And so I think if we can sort of make those ties a little bit more explicit, um, how addressing the climate crisis in sort of a more progressive way can help to make people's lives better and to make them feel more financially secure, particularly when like food prices are skyrocketing, things like that, that could maybe be a place to start the argument. Yeah. And I think, I think part of it, sorry, I know we probably want to move on to a different topic, but I um, think part of it is that we also need to, like David said, um, engage with broader movements for social justice as well. Because I think, I think part of the reason that like, it's, it's all well and good for us to be maybe changing the message and, and helping people see how uh, the fight for climate is, is relevant to their daily lives. But um, we're not always trusted messengers in those spaces. Um, and I think that's, I think, I think there's a number of reasons for that, but part of that is because we, we haven't been as active. Um, we meaning specifically like enviros haven't been as active in social justice and, and working class spaces as, as we should have been and need to be. So I think a lot of it is like, we have to win a lot of trust before we can start pushing our own messages as well. Actually, I think that really leads nicely into Kristen and I wanting to talk about the I don't know, Kristen, if you want to talk about this now, but the Van Gogh and the paint. <laughs> I, yeah, we can I talk about that. It's been very much in the zeitgeist and maybe everybody's sick of that topic, in which case we can talk about how Chris Hemsworth has been trying to bring back uh, wo- Wooly Mammoth, according to, uh, looks like maybe someone from- <laughs> Oh, this is like the Radio. DNA thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or we can talk about Van Gogh. I mean, I do think it's- um... Just to give a little bit of background, there were some activists in the UK who threw tomato soup on a Vincent van Gogh painting, and then it sort of has sparked copycat versions around the world. Um, But it's led to a bunch of conversation about climate protest methods, which does always cause me to roll my eyes when it's like the thing that the news decides to talk about in reaction to things like that. Uh, But I I do want to know sort of Uh, Lauren and David, if you have any thoughts about civil disobedience as a tactic, is it working? Um, Do you think escalating to these kinds of sort of more aggressive tactics work? What what are some strategies that could be more successful for the climate movement? Although just before we jump into that, I should note that as as far as I know, the painting is unharmed. And so no damage was (laughs) even done, but everyone's talking about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> violent nodding from David and Lauren. <laughs> I don't know who wants to start on this one. <laughs> I can jump in really quickly. Um, I, I think the thing is, it's it's just, it's funny that you use the term escalation because I actually think these are like, this is pretty tame. Yeah. And like really at the end of the day, like, do I think it is the most efficacious, like <laughs> um, I, uh, slow movement, deep organizing building tactic? No. Not really. But at the end of the day, it's like these kind of eye-catching, annoying, I don't know, grind your gears stunts are always a part of any sort of uh, social movement. Um, Do I think it's necessarily what everybody should spend their time doing? No. But like like you said, at the end of the day, the painting wasn't harmed. It's been extremely um, eye-catching. It's got us talking about climate action in, in, in 
spaces where otherwise people aren't maybe talking about it. Again, I'm always for a diversity of tactics and let's maybe mix it up a little bit. Um, <laughs> let's stop oil. But also, I don't know. I, I maybe roll my eyes a little bit, but I'm not I'm not terribly offended by it. But I would be really curious to hear from David. Sorry, I've been chatting a lot. No, no, not at all. Um, not not offended one bit by it, you know, but also <laughs> it's uh, just given what people in Britain are facing, what working class people in Britain are facing with this coming winter, skyrocketing energy costs, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of hardships in terms of people's people's lives is just very disconnected, I think, mm. from the workplace and community organizing that needs to be to be done, but shed no tears for the tomatoes as they would say, right? Tomato soup uh, against the glass. Uh, and uh, there was actually a really good piece about this on the British um, site, The Ecologist. Uh, Harry Holmes wrote a, a, an article, this short piece on, on this question. Like, you know, get over the, the uh, stuff about propriety and given the scale of the problems that we face, but also just, we can say, yeah, this isn't actually very helpful for relating to people in their everyday lives and trying to actually you know, build on the momentum that's been there from some of the strikes and public transit and some of the better stuff that's come out of Extinction Rebellion and its offshoots and so on. Um, so it's not, you know, it's maybe not the most productive route to follow, but sh- shed no tears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I no, that's, that that's... Ad- ad- attitude. <laughs> well, no, and, and that's an incredibly good point David makes is that like, yeah, when like you said, when when the UK, especially is in this era of like energy poverty and people are are so hard done by right now and Europe isn't what is a fossil crisis, but what is being referred to as an energy crisis. Um, is this the best way to win hearts, win minds, make people feel reflected and seen within the movement? Potentially not, likely not. Um, yeah, I mean, this is in a, Britain is a, is a country where you have so much housing that is in desperate need of retrofitting, right? It's, not insulated, mm-hmm. very poorly insulated. There should be all sorts of campaigns around that and uh, heat pumps, right? All sorts of things that could be done uh, in terms of climate job creation um, around that stuff. So, I'm personally yeah, it, a huge fan of downsizing and everyone working not 40 hours a week. Like that's that's madness for the targets we need. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and it is sort of funny that that again, this um, although these. Uh, folks folks utilizing or, or engaging with this tactic or it's starting to pop up all over Europe, but like, because it originated in the UK where Extinction Rebellion originated. And again, the critique of, of this tactic is sort of similar to, there was a lot of critiques around Extinction Rebellion, but like one of them being that like, it felt out of touch. It mm-hmm. felt um, a little bit out of left field. It felt very kind of like, I don't know, classically aggressive and angry white activisty. You know what I mean? Like it was like, I remember when people, when, um, there were there was a maybe just one faction or one cohort of Extinction Rebellion that that blocked um, a subway or a metro or a tube line, and it's like yeah, that is a little bit incoherent with 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 the world we're trying to build here. So um, it is it's just funny that that these sort of tactics are continually coming out of the UK, <laughs> and I don't quite know the point I'm trying to make. It's just amusing. Yeah. So well, what that, about oh, Kristen? We're actually just about to end our hour, so I was just going to say goodbye to everybody. Oh, don't we have two more minutes? I, I want to ask one uh, more question. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Can we answer a question in two minutes, you guys? I Christian bet David can. I bet David can. <laughs> All right. So last question for listeners who are thinking about getting more involved with climate activism. What would your tip or piece of advice be for them? We'll make well, it okay. one. <laughs> 
I mean, if, if there's a group uh, that's, uh, you know, where you live that's organizing with climate justice uh, as its approach, then by all means, consider getting involved. But remember, you can be a supporter of climate justice and active in other places too, right? It doesn't just mean being in a climate group. So I would say, you know, learn about what people talk about when they talk about climate justice. You could pick up my book, um, Future on Fire, lots of other good materials out there. But think about how you can work towards promoting collective action and you can do that in lots of different kinds of places. Nice. And you know what, um, Lauren, you can actually give us an answer too. Andre says that um, they're, uh, the next group is still getting ready, so we can vamp a little bit. Um, but just uh, I'm going to just pop in right here before we get the last like little suggestion of what we can do and just remind um, anyone watching or listening that you can join the Harbinger family by going to harbingermedianetwork.com slash join, which is like this whole thing. This whole thing is to fundraise. So please give us funds. <laughs> And I mean, just really quickly, the, unfortunately it's not a very exciting answer because it's, it's exactly what David said. I wouldn't change anything about it. And his response is the exact one I would give first look around, see who else is already doing this work within your community, because I guarantee somebody else is already doing it. Don't feel like you're alone in these feelings and like you're alone in this desire to, to engage with your community and, and build these solutions from the ground up because there are other good folks who are already doing this work. It's just up to you to find them. You might have to do a bit of digging depending on the, on the community that you live in. Um, and then secondarily, yeah, climate justice work doesn't necessarily look like, um, sort of quintessential climate work. It doesn't necessarily look like advocating for solar panels. It, it's mutual aid work. It's um, it's uh, migrant justice work. It's um, disability justice work. It's transit justice work. Like it's, those are all integral elements and deeply connected to, to the climate movement. So um, it looks like a lot of things. Uh, just, just take a moment and figure out who's already doing good stuff in your community and plug in that way. Christian, do you have a better answer since obviously those answers were awful? Uh, I do not. <laughs> those are great answers. I'm uh, really excited about them. No, uh, but Christian, they, they make me do work. And like, I have to, I can't. Well, what about like... carbon offsets then, Kyla? That just fixes oh, everything, right? No problems there. Good. Thank you. Yes. Okay, that's it. I wanted something easy that I could do tomorrow and carbon offsets are the thing. So <laughs> just kidding, everybody. I am being sarcastic. Please do not make carbon offsets the hill you die on. <laughs> Does anyone have anything that they want to say before we all say goodbye? Support Harbinger. And yes, the podcast to make it up. Yeah. Thanks so yeah. much for your time tonight, everybody. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Great to meet you all. Yeah, nice to meet you guys too. Thanks for the chat.